Well, I want to invite you to turn your Bibles now to the book of Titus, the book of Titus, as we complete our study in this book, Titus chapter 3, Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. As Paul writes to Titus, in the, who is ministering in Crete, he is a pastor has been given charge to establish leadership among a number of churches there in Crete. This is the second to last letter that Paul writes before the Lord takes him home. Here, the third of the three pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. And here in this particular passage, Paul gives instruction to Titus, an encouragement, what he is to do in relationship to various individuals within the church, those who are factious, those who are ministry friends, and also to encourage the congregation to bear fruit through good deeds. Verse 9, the text reads, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your precious word. And we pray, O God, that you would help us to understand, to know, and to apply that which you desire that we learn. Open the eyes of our heart once again that we might see great and wonderful things from thy word. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. In the Los Angeles Times, there was a report related to what happened in a Florida courtroom. There was a judge, and there was an assistant public defender, and there was conflict. There was video footage that showed that the judge, whose name was John Murphy, instigated the fight with public defender Andrew Weinstock. And they began arguing as to whether or not Weinstock, who was the public defender, would waive his right to a speedy trial. The judge was trying to convince the public defender to waive his right, but the defense lawyer really would not have anything of it. So the judge said, you know, if I had a rock, I would throw it at you right now. Just sit down. Weinstock responded. He said, you know, I'm the public defender. I have a right to be here. I have a right to stand and represent my client. And on the video, the judge then appears to ask Weinstock to come to the back hallway. 
an area where there's no cameras in which apparently a fight broke out. If you want to fight, let's go out back, he tells the public defender before the two head off, and the video shows that there's scuffling, loud thuds, in which two deputies eventually break up the fight, and the public defender is assigned to a different area while the judge agreed to take a leave of absence and have anger management counseling. (laughs) People are sinners, and there will always be conflict. There will always be fights. James tells us that in James 4, 1 to 3, tells us, what is the source of quarrels and conflict among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Fights and conflict happen because of sin, because of sin. And the church is not immune. The church is not immune. There are those who bring division into the church because of controversies stemming from false teaching. But there are those on the flip side that do bring good things, that do bless the church, that are there to minister in good deeds. And so we'll be looking at two sides of the coin those that bring conflict and those that bring peace and minister in a good way. And Paul's instruction here to Titus at the end of this particular epistle is how to deal with various people, people who are either divisive or people in the ministry who bless. And so we look first at Paul's instruction to Titus related to those who bring controversy and disputes. In verse 9, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. What is in reference here is that of the Old Testament law. Foolish controversies, genealogies, strife, disputes about the law. It is in view here. Jewish teachings, you see, Jewish teachings often majored on the minor. They employed a method of interpretation called allegorization or allegory to interpret the scriptures. And basically, allegory is applying a symbolic meaning to the text of the scriptures in order to come up with some sort of hidden meaning behind the text. When it comes to interpreting the Bible, you see, and some of you have been attending the hermeneutics class in our Sunday school, we read the Bible for what it says, unless there is some warrant to see it otherwise, such as a particular genre of scripture. That kind of approach to the Bible to read it for what it says is sometimes just termed the plain reading of scripture, the plain reading of the text, what it means in plain language. In other words, you're not reading the Bible in order to look for some mystical, hidden interpretation as if God were trying to continually play hide and seek with his will from you. So when we read the genealogical accounts, for example, we say so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, so-and-so begat so-and-so, etc. You're not thinking to yourself, hmm, I wonder if these refer to the number of planets we have in our solar system. Or maybe this is how we should structure our will and the inheritance that we're going to give to our children. No, this is simply lineage. It is so-and-so was the father of so-and-so or the ancestor of so-and-so. 
It is the plain reading of the text. And this is not to say in this text in verse 9 that genealogies are not important. We find genealogies in the book of Matthew. We find a genealogy in the book of Luke. They are important because they establish the validity of Jesus as the Messiah as well as the King. There are important details in the Word of God. And this is not saying that all controversies should be avoided. Just stick to the gospel. All controversies should be avoided. Just stick to the things that all Christians agree on. Well, that would never be feasible. There are plenty of very important biblical issues that are controversy, controversial, and the text is not saying to avoid all controversy. In the context of the book of Titus, though, back in chapter 1, verse 10, there were a number of false teachers, among whom were Judaizers, who had come into the church. They were folks that still clung to the Old Testament law, and they were trying to impose these Old Testament laws to the new Gentile believers. And Paul called them Judaizers. Paul called Titus to deal with them severely. In fact, this was a common thing. When Paul wrote to Timothy in the book of 1 Timothy, he tells him to deal with those who are propagating false teaching. In Titus here, he tells them in verse 10 of chapter 1, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. That is in reference to the Judaizers who came into the church who tried to propagate and impose upon the new Gentile believers the Old Testament laws. Verse 13 in chapter 1, for this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Not all of them were Judaizers, but a good portion of them, especially those of the circumcision, Paul says in verse 10. So some of the individuals who had infiltrated the church were continuing to propagate controversies and take note of particular genealogies that they would allegorize. The same problem happened in the Galatian church in Galatians chapter 6, verses 12 to 13. Paul writes, Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised. There were those, you see, who wanted the people in Galatia to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. There were those, perhaps they were Jewish Christians, perhaps they were just Judaizers, uh, doesn't say, there are those who desire to make a good showing. There were those Jews who said, we're, we're circumcised. You know, you've come to Christ. Well, you still need to be circumcised. And they do it. Why? Not because they feel that it would be good for them. They do it so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. They did it for themselves. In many instances in the New Testament, Paul warns of people who would peddle their particular beliefs and agenda and fighting about the minutia and fighting about things that were even in the Old Testament that were unbiblical, causing trouble and causing strife. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of hearers. Be diligent, therefore, to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. 
but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they upset the faith of some. There were some who would just come and propagate things that were simply untrue. There were those who would talk about things that were foolish and worthless, individuals causing a strife, causing conflict, causing division, instigating controversy. And when that happens, it is cancerous to the church. Those types of discussions are unprofitable, the text says. They're worthless. And there are all sorts of things that people will debate over that have very little doctrinal or practical implications. Sometimes they're false, like the Judaizers. Sometimes they have to do with legalistic laws and practices. Sometimes they have to do with a secondary soapbox issue that someone has a particular interest in. Sometimes they might have to do with dietary laws, or if you don't follow this or whatnot, then you are substandard as a Christian. People can be into all sorts of issues, and they write master's theses and doctoral dissertations on things that have little or no relevance or are sometimes blatantly false. Some of these things create controversies and conflict, and like in 1.11, it says disrupt whole families. Sometimes even they have to do with non-biblical issues that tried to bring into the church. I was speaking at another church earlier this year, and afterwards a gentleman came up to me to ask me about my view related to something, and usually it's something that is biblical, but he asked about my view of something he had thought of. He had thought of a means by which he could create or someone could create in order to absorb the radioactivity at the Fukushima nuclear plant disaster in 2011 which he followed up with a phone call later on. Or years ago, one individual would write many letters that I'd receive related to the electromagnetic field that would be generated by the power lines near churches. Or even this morning, I received a letter in the mailbox. I picked it up. I didn't bring it here, but related to how, and they were writing to the church and had my name on it, related to how we ought to lobby for equal gender representation in the new Star Wars movie. A lot of times people, I don't know why, have particular soapboxes related to things that are unbiblical, that take up time. People can get caught up with sidebar issues, that create a lot of smoke, causing a lot of congestion, and creating controversy. This is not to say that all controversy, again, needs to be avoided. There are many issues that are biblical, that are relevant, that are important. But Paul here particularly says there are particular issues that are sidebar issues. And he says, avoid, or some of your versions say, shun, verse 9. The word means to turn oneself around, to purposely turn away from something or someone. Don't engage them. Don't entertain them. Don't argue with them. Don't, uh, don't engage them to prove that they're wrong. Just avoid. Avoid. Shun. Don't spend and waste the time that it will take. Particularly, what are we to do if one is propagating these types of things? Verse 10, reject a factious man 
after a first and second warning. Warn them, reject them after one or two times, first and second time, I mean, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. That word reject is also translated in other portions of Scripture, 1 Timothy 4, 7, as have nothing to do with. 2 Timothy 2, 23, refuse. Refuse, reject someone who propagates these things. A factious individual. The word comes from hereticos, from which we get the word heretic. The idea is that the person who is divisive, who is propagating these things, who wants to bring in some sort of issue that will divide and be factious is to be rejected. Romans 16 is even more clear, if you'll turn in your Bibles there. Romans 16, verses 17 and 18, tells us even more clearly about how to deal with people who bring in such things that cause dissension and hindrances. Romans 16, verse 17 and 18. The text reads, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. There are some people who are very smooth talkers. They're flattering. They're good at public speech. But the things they say are unbiblical and against what is true. And the Bible says, keep your eye on them and turn away from them to avoid them, to rebuke them to deal with them if they continue to propagate these things. What you don't do is you keep them here, not saying a word and letting them continue on with propagating things that are false, causing disruption, causing dissension. Some people in some churches, though, misunderstand, you see, the principle that is here. They misapply the principle because some will take the view that if somebody merely believes something that is different, you should remove them from the church. That's their view. That's their inner desire. Get rid of anybody. Get rid of them if they're a Christian or a non-Christian that doesn't think like me. Get rid of them if they want everybody to be in the church. They want everybody to be that which thinks all the same things all the time, whether they're a Christian, non-Christian, young Christian, mature Christian. There's no room for any of those be happy to show them the door if they don't agree with me. There's no more room. But the Scriptures don't teach that. The Scriptures don't say reject somebody that simply thinks a certain way. It says reject those who are factious or reject those who are causing dissensions, reject those who are causing hindrances, reject those who are promoting something that is false or disciplined Christians who are in unrepentant sin. But if someone is not divisive, not promoting false doctrine, not causing strife, not causing trouble, not causing division, willing to learn, willing to grow. We are to exercise patience that they might hear the truth and know what the Word of God teaches. But those who are divisive, those who are factious, this text says they are perverted, sinning, and self-condemned. What is so sad today is there is such a low bar. There is such a low bar for biblical and theological discernment that people not only do not know what is true, but don't care oftentimes about what is true. 
They don't have a desire to learn about what is true. They don't have a desire to think deeply. They don't have a desire to grow and to flourish. So they let all sorts of things in. That's the more problem, common problem today. But in biblical times, during that time, one commentator notes, the 4th century church historian Eusebius reported that when the apostles died, a conspiracy of godless error arose through deceptive false teachers who arrogantly propagated their insidious lies in opposition to the word of God or to God's word. See, Satan's greatest, greatest weapon is not through fear. It is through false teaching, false ideas, lies that you would believe rather than acceptance of the truth, acceptance of the word of God. And if he can get you to begin to think things that are untrue, to captivate your mind to what the world would teach, then you're already down the wrong path. We're to reject those who are factious individuals who cause strife and division within the body of Christ. Now, on the other side of the coin, there are those who are in the ministry who are friends. And that is whom Paul tells Titus to help. Verse 12, when I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Here in the closing thoughts that Paul gives, he makes mentions of some friends of his in the ministry that he's sending to take Titus's place. We don't know anything about Artemis, but Tychicus's name is mentioned a number of times in the New Testament. Tychicus accompanied Paul on his missionary journey from Corinth to Asia Minor in Acts 20. He delivered Paul's letter to the church at Colossae in Colossae 4.7, Colossians 4.7, and he was probably the one in Ephesus, Ephesus 6, Ephesians 6.21, where the first of the two references of Tychicus is called, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord. He is spoken well of, the beloved brother and the faithful minister in the Lord. Paul was going to send Artemis and Tychicus to take Titus's place, and Titus was to meet Paul. He wanted to fellowship with Paul. He wanted Titus to fellowship with him in Nicopolis. At this time, when Paul was writing, Paul was probably in Macedonia, and according to the historian Zahn, there were nine cities named Nicopolis. We don't know exactly which one he was to meet him in, but the name of the city it's interesting. Polis, of course, means city, which many of you probably know. But the, per, the, but, the, but the prefix to that in Nicopolis comes from the word Nike, from which we get Nike shoes, Nike the swoosh, Nike sportswear. It means victor, victory. When a general would win a battle, what he would do is he would name a town, he would name a city called Nicopolis. And every time you think of Nicopolis, it means victory town or victory city. That's what it means. So now you know what the swoosh means when you see it on TV. Titus was to meet him there. Titus was to meet Paul there in Decapolis. And Titus was to diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, so nothing is lacking in them. One was a Christian attorney. We don't know anything about Zenos. But Apollos, on the other hand, is mentioned a number of times in the New Testament, always in a very favorable way. He was a very eloquent Jewish preacher of the gospel from Alexandria in Egypt who was mighty in the scriptures, the Bible says. He had been instructed 
in the way of the Lord. He was fervent in spirit, Acts 18, speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, but was only acquainted with the baptism of John. So when he came to Ephesus and he began speaking out boldly in the synagogue, there were two individuals, Priscilla and Aquila, who heard him and took him aside and explained to him, the text says in verse 26 and 27 in Acts 18, explained to him the way of God more accurately and encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he helped greatly, the text says, those who had believed through grace. Apollos was a powerful preacher who followed the word of God as and followed Paul as Paul lamented, for I have been informed concerning you, my brethren. There are quarrels among you. He was one who is mentioned in the book of 1 Corinthians. Quarrels among you when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that there were some who said, well, I'm of Paul, I'm of Christ. And some who would say, I'm of Apollos, because Apollos was well known. He had a following. This was the Apollos that is mentioned here and Titus was to do what he could to encourage his friends in the ministry. He was to do what he could in order to help them along. In the New Testament times, it was very difficult to be in the ministry, to be a pastor or a missionary. There were plenty of people who were outrightly hostile to the Christian faith. To be a person who served the Lord in the New Testament times, it was physically grueling and financially very difficult as well. So in biblical times, it was looked upon very favorably to help those who were in the ministry, to extend hospitality to traveling teachers of the Word of God. And they gave, they gave. They give, the giving in the New Testament was primarily for two reasons. One was to help the poor, and two, it was to help those who were in the ministry. And along those lines, Paul says to Titus, help these brothers who would come. So, Titus was to reject those who were factious, but to help those who were serving the Lord in the ministry, to encourage them and to help these friends of Paul. And lastly, he was to encourage the church at large to bear fruit by good deeds, to bear fruit by good deeds. Verse 14, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Brandon Cook was visiting his ailing grandmother in New Hampshire. She was in a hospital, and she was soon to pass. Nearby, there was a Panera Bread Cafe, and there was a letter that was written to them in which he writes to the store, saying, my grandmother is passing soon with cancer. I visited her the other day, and she was telling me about how she really wanted soup, but not the hospital soup because she said it tasted awful. She went on to tell about how she would really like some clam chowder from Panera. Unfortunately, Panera only sells clam chowder on Fridays. I called the manager, Sue, and told them the situation. I wasn't looking for anything special, just a bowl of clam chowder. Without hesitation, she said, absolutely. She would make her some clam chowder, and I went to pick it up and wound up. They gave me a box of cookies as well. It's not that big of a deal to most, but to my, to my grandma, it meant a lot. I really want to thank Sue and the rest of the staff from Panera at Nashua, New Hampshire, for making my grandmother happy. Thank you so much.
This was posted on Facebook, and within days of the short post, it received 800,000 likes. 35,000 people took time to write a brief Facebook message commending the bakery. The authors of the 2014 book, A World Gone Social, tells the story and writes about the effect. The next quarter, Panera's same-store sales increased by 28%, and a quarter after that by 34%. Now, there's no way of proving, of course, that this was a result of the publicity they got. But all that to say is that sometimes a small act of kindness can have tremendous impact upon others, a world that is watching by social media these days. Good works is what we're created to do. Good works is what we're called to do. Created to do good works for God's glory. And the Bible frequently tells us that we are to be engaged in good deeds. Titus, just in that book alone, Titus 2.7 says, In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. Titus 2.14, he gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous, zealous for good deeds. Titus 3.8, this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. And Hebrews 10, 24, and let us consider how we might stimulate one another to love and good deeds. 1 Timothy 6, 18, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share. In fact, good deeds and good works, as I mentioned before, is the purpose by which you and I were created. The reason why you and I were created, Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Can you imagine that? The passage says, number one, you don't belong to yourself. If you're a child of God, you've been saved by grace, you do not belong to yourself. You belong to God. We belong to God as God's children. God owns you. The reason God created you there is to do good works, is to do good works. In fact, God has prepared beforehand that you would do all of these good deeds. So there's no such thing as a vacation from doing good things. Towards others. There's no season of life in which we don't do good to others. We don't say, oh, well, you know what? I've got to make sure that I'm fine before I do good for others. No, these are things as a lifelong habit. We were created to do good things to others. They are our God-given responsibility, our God-given duty to do good towards others. It's important for us to do good deeds because they give glory to God. You never know who's watching 1 Peter 2.12 tells us, it says, Keep your behavior, how you act, excellent, excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, see, they'll slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. 
Whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, or there's a watching world that sees the things that you do. And they make note of it in their head, whether or not they ever tell you or not. Just last week in the news, I was reading Marshawn Lynch. It was reported he gave $500 to this McDonald's worker. King5.com, it also said, those of you who watched the game, you know about Ricardo Lockett, who was injured, neck brace and all. After he got out of the hospital, he was riding in a car, and he saw all of these homeless folks on the streets. So he went to his local McDonald's, and he bought 100 cheeseburgers and handed them out. They would ask him, oh, who are you, and why, why do you have a neck brace on and all that? He would downplay all of that. He just wanted to give. And I'm sure these guys didn't have some sort of pre-planned thing where they called all the reporters to come in order to see what they were doing so they could do it in front of the media. No, these were things that just came to mind as they did it. There was a watching world out there. And as Christians, our behavior is to be, as it says in Peter, behavior that is excellent among the Gentiles. So that they, in the day of visitation, when Christ comes again and they bow the knee to Christ because everyone will, willingly or unwillingly, they will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, they will bow the knee. There will be acknowledgement that God has done great things through you who did good deeds. Paul's reminder was our people must learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs, immediate needs that are there. You never know who will be watching. There's a producer for 60 Minutes. His name is John Marks. He went on a two-year quest, and his two-year quest was to investigate evangelicals, the group that he had grown up among, but he himself rejected later on. He wrote a book about the quest called Reasons to Believe, One Man's Journey among the evangelicals, and the faith he left behind. He notes the church's response to Hurricane Katrina. For him, it turned the corner. For his own view, it became a key reason to believe. One Baptist church in Baton Rouge fed 16,000 people a day for weeks. Another housed 700 homeless evacuees. Years after the hurricane and long after federal assistance had dried up, he notes that there was a network of churches, a network of churches in surrounding states that still send regular teams to help rebuild homes. He noticed that most impressively to him, all of these church efforts crossed racial lines crossed barriers in the Deep South. As one worker told him, quote, we had whites, blacks, Hispanics, Vietnamese, good old Cajun. We just tried to say, hey, let's help people. This is our state. We'll let everyone else sort out the other stuff. We've got to cook some rice, unquote. He concluded, I would argue that this is a watershed moment in the history of American Christianity. Nothing spoke more eloquently to believers and to non-believers who were paying attention than the success of a population of believing volunteers measured against the massive and near-total collapse of secular government efforts. Unquote. God has not called us to a faith by works. He's called us to a faith that is filled with good works. 
because of his grace, done for his glory. And we're to do so. We're to do so. To be sensitive, to be compassionate, to look out and see what are the needs of others and to choose to meet those needs as sacrificial ways that we might give or help to see beyond ourselves, to see beyond the walls of this church and to reach out with the love of Christ that the testimony that we might have might resonate for God's glory. And so Paul gives here instructions as to how Titus is to respond to those who are factious, how Titus is to help those who serve the Lord, how Titus is to encourage us as a church. All people who are God's children to engage in good works that God has prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. Let's bow together in prayer. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the privilege of doing good works, for the privilege of engaging and serving you, for the privilege and the opportunity it is, Lord, to live for you as children of God. We pray, O Father, that you would help us to be sensitive to the needs of others, to be compassionate, to be caring, and to see, Father, beyond our own selfishness, and to reach out with the love of Christ. Especially, Father, to make the most of every opportunity during this season of thanksgiving. We pray, God, that our gratitude towards you might be shared in tangible ways as we live for you. In Jesus' most precious name, amen.